Hello and welcome to the Last Push podcast. I hope you guys are having a great day, um, getting a lot accomplished, being really, really productive with your day. The weather is gorgeous out, so hopefully you have got a chance to get out and go for a walk or run and enjoy some of that sunshine if you were able to do that. And hopefully all you guys are happy and healthy and trying to just stay as positive as possible right now. So ladies and gentlemen, today we are going to get back into some chemistry. But before we do that, I just want to remind you guys, um, and a lot of the students that I teach regularly kind of already know about this, but we need to be revisiting and going back through. We need to be mindful of the forgetting curve. And we need to really remember that It's really, really easy to forget things if we are not frequently going over them. So make sure that you're building on those habits, those good habits, where you guys are trying to go back and refresh and go back through things on a regular, emphasis on the word regular or frequent basis, okay? You can't just go through something once and expect to remember it for a really, really long time. Nobody can do that. Nobody's brain works like that. Um, And you're going to have a really hard time. So remember the forgetting curve. Remember that you want to try and go back through this information as regularly as possible. I know we haven't been in class in a long time, but you've gone through those quizzes, those fill in the blank quizzes, those no state quizzes with me a lot. So you know the types of things that you can be doing, the quick, easy activities that you can be doing to refresh that information. You guys also know that I love doing something called the four square where you guys come in the room and I give you a blank piece of paper and I say, fold it, fold it in half again so that you have four squares. And I just give you an overarching topic and you guys go through and you write as much as possible on it. So for example, one of your topics could be the digestion of carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. Another square could be the cardiovascular system. There's lots of stuff. You could go through the flow of blood. You could go through the differences between arteries, capillaries, and veins. You could go through the four components of blood, red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, plasma. You could go through cardiovascular disease and the different types of things like statins and stents and heart transplants that we have in modern medicine to help combat the cardiovascular disease. There are lots of different things that you guys can be doing to make sure that you are refreshing and going back through this. Most of you at this point all have revision guides. You should hopefully be working your way and making some flashcards on that key information as well. So please don't just listen to these things once. Don't just read up once on electrolysis and think you're going to remember it. You need to be building those daily habits that are consistent so that you can actually remember this and keep it in your long-term memory. And then the more you go over it, the more embedded into your brain it will be. So just try, try, try your best and try to make sure that you're building those habits so that when we get back into school, you guys have not lost all that great work that you've done since the start of the year. 
So on today's episode, we are specifically going to take a look at chemistry paper two and with chemist, sorry, part two of chemistry paper one. And part two of chemistry paper one is all about the bonding, the structure, the properties of matter. So main thing that we're going to take a look at is the three main types of bonding with our simple molecules. Then we're going to take a look at some of the larger molecules as well because this comes into play in this section. Now specifically with bonding structure and properties of matter, this is a really good section just like that first podcast that I did on um, section one for chemistry paper one. A lot of this stuff actually comes up on your chemistry paper too. So a lot of this stuff is interchangeable and a lot of this stuff you really need to be confident with and feel really prepared when you're going in for both chemistry exams. So get yourself a pen, get yourself some paper and let's get intentional with our studying. Okay, and welcome back. Hopefully you guys have got all of your materials that you need so that we can write down some of those important facts so that hopefully you can go back through and make some flashcards that you use on a regular basis from this podcast and start just embedding those and start just making use of flashcards and using them regularly to quiz yourself in a non-stressful way so that you can start building this into your long-term memory. So first thing is just kind of an overview about the chemical bonds. There are three types of strong chemical bonds. We've got ionic, covalent, and metallic. And how I usually do this in the classroom is a lot of times um, you can spend an entire lesson on all of these, but as you're going through and as you're summarizing these things, one of the best things to do is kind of just make a three columned table with the names of the bonds up at the top so if you guys are trying to write any notes down that's might you might want to structure it that way so ionic covalent and metallic and what we're going to do is we're going to look at each one of these because you need to know them in detail and you need to recognize them so after we're done this or potentially you might want to pause it now and get open your revision guides or get up some different pictures and different examples of ionic covalence and a picture of metallic bonding because it might help you um, just to visualize this as we go through it because sometimes it is hard when you're just talking and listening to concepts to really have that visual in your mind so it might help you if you do that so with ionic bonding um, I always try to bold or really underline the word I because when I think of I um, and also ion within the word, it helps me remember what ionic bonding is all about. And I, when I think of I, I think of kind of the selfish version, I, I, me, myself, I. So with an ionic bond, it's actually going to be a transfer of electrons to benefit the atom or the element 
Um, so what happens is if you're looking at your periodic table or if you've got the, that visual of your periodic table in your mind now because I've just mentioned it, ionic bonding happens between metals which are on the left-hand side of the periodic table. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to take a look at ionic bonding. And if we take a look at ionic bonding, um, your metals are going to be on the left side of your periodic table. Your non-metals are going to be on the right side of your periodic table. And the main thing that we, we really need to remember is that metal atoms are going to transfer their electrons to the non-metal atoms. So if you think about things in group one, lithium, sodium, potassium, cesium, rubidium, if you actually think about drawing them out, or if you've got some diagrams in front of you, or you can pause it and look some up, you should remember and hopefully realize that everything in group one will have one electron in its outer shell. So what will happen is those metals from group one, they are all going to react in a similar way and every single one of them will lose one electron and they'll transfer one of their electrons to a non-metal. So for example, they could transfer it to a group seven halogen. So for example, sodium could transfer one electron to chlorine to make sodium chloride. Um, so that's kind of what you typically see. You typically see a lot of group one metals transferring one electron to group seven non-metals. Basically, you just need to really think simply in terms of the numbers with the electrons. So if you don't want to overcomplicate it, because um, it can get a lot more complicated, you just need to think metals in group one will lose one electron. Metals in group two will lose two electrons. Non-metals in group six will have to get two electrons to have a full outer shell because they're trying to get eight electrons to have a full outer shell. And non-metals for group seven, like the halogens, are all going to have to get one extra electron to have a full outer shell. Where this gets slightly more complicated and where some students sometimes have some difficulties is if you've got, for example, a group one metal and it's paired with a group six non-metal, okay, I need you to really just think logically about this for a second. That group one metal has got one electron in its outer shell, so it can transfer one to the group six. Now six plus one is only seven. So it means that it doesn't yet have a full outer shell. So what needs to happen is there needs to be two of the group one metals. So if you've got a group one paired with a group six, then there's gonna have to be two of the group one for every one of the group six. Now I know that kind of sounds complicated because I'm not giving you an example, but say for example, we've got lithium and oxygen. Okay, you guys have all kind of um, potentially done some experiments with magnesium and oxygen, so you know that oxygen is quite reactive. So let's just take lithium 
and oxygen, for example. Lithium's got one electron in its outer shell. Oxygen has six electrons in its outer shell. Now, when you put these in close proximity with enough energy, they're going to react. So what will happen is one electron from lithium will transfer to oxygen. But that means that there's only seven electrons in the outer shell of oxygen. So you need to have an additional lithium. So it needs to be Li2O, lithium oxides. But for every one oxygen, there needs to be two of the lithiums. Okay, so that's how they can make this more complicated on you. So think, um, think really hard about the next example I'm going to give you. So if we've got a group two metal, it means it's got two electrons in the outer shell. So anything in group two is going to easily transfer to group six. Yeah, that just makes sense. Two electrons go over to the non-metal in group six, and that group six will now have eight. So both of them will have full outer shells. They'll both be um, finished reacting, and they'll both have full outer shells. So that one works. Now, another tricky one that might not work is if you've got a group one group two and a group seven non-metal, a halogen. So if you've got magnesium chloride, for example, magnesium's in group two, so it will have two electrons, but chlorine's in group seven, so it will have only space for one of those electrons. So what do you think has to logically happen then in terms of how many chlorines there are, or how many magnesiums there are? Just have a really think about it and make sure the numbers match up. The chlorine needs to get rid of two. Sorry, the magnesium needs to get rid of two. The chlorine needs to get one. So have a think about it. And hopefully I've waffled on for enough time for you to kind of have an idea in your mind. Um, and really what you need to try to think about is that with the magnesium, it's going to give one electron to the first chlorine. And it's going to give its second electron to the second chlorine. So with magnesium chloride, you're going to have MgCl2. So for every group two metal, you have to have two group seven halogens. Okay, so if you kind of remember those rules, you should not get tricked by it. Just really, really think logically in terms of your non-metals have to get to eight. Your metals have to lose one or two. They cannot have any left over. They need to lose them all to have their next shell being a full outer shell. So think logically about it um, because nine times out of ten, you're only ever going to be asked group one and group two with group six or group seven. So there's only really a handful of no a number of different ways they can throw that at you. So try a few different ones. Um, and in terms of the diagrams itself, I cannot show you on podcast how to do dot and cross diagrams. So what you really need to do is you really need to take the time and you need to look on BBC Bite Size or just Google image dot and cross diagrams for ionic compounds and look at at least 10 of these. Get at least 10 examples down, practice them, and you need to try to remember that you need to always remember the square brackets 
you need to always have one of the elements as dots and the other element as crosses. Now, the last thing before we go on to ionic compounds and then different types of bonding is when metals lose electrons, they're technically losing something that is negatively charged. So their new charge will be positive. So if I've got sodium chloride, sodium um, usually has got 11 electrons and it's usually got 11 protons. So overall, it's, po it's a neutral charge. It has no charge. Um, and then when it loses that one electron, when it transfers that one electron to chlorine, it's lost one thing that's negative. So it actually has an overall charge of positive. And we show that with a little plus above. So, and this is where the name comes in handy in trying to use kind of that link with the name. Ionic bonding forms ions. Okay, so you can have positive ions and you can have negative ions. And sodium loses an electron, which is negatively charged. So it will become a positive ion. And chlorine in group 7 gains one electron. So gains one more additional negatively charged electron. So it will become a negative chlorine ion. And then... If you're thinking about things in group two, so metals in group two, if they lose two, they become plus two. Group six, if they get transferred two electrons, they become negative two, negative two ion. Um, so just try to always talk about at the start of your question when you're answering these types of questions, they are atoms transferring electrons but after they've lost or gained those electrons they're no longer atoms they're called ions and that's from that first podcast if you want to go back and listen to it we went through the definition of an ion an ion is an atom that has lost or gained an electrons and metals always lose electrons and become positive ions and non-metals always gain electrons and become negative ions so next thing we're going to take a look at is ionic compounds. And whenever you think about the word compound, you just need to think that it's it's larger. It's larger, it's a giant structure, um, and in terms of if it's an ionic compound, it is a giant structure of ions. Now these are slightly different because they're held together with really, really strong electrostatic forces. Um, and usually ionic compounds, because of these really strong electrostatic forces, are held together um, and the forces act in all different directions and what it does is it causes a lattice structure. Okay, and that word lattice, L-A-T-T-I-C-E, comes up when we're talking about graphite as well. So it's something that comes up more than once in this section. So a lattice structure. Um, and what you need to be able to know is that if you get given a diagram, and honestly, they do this all the time, and it usually throws students off um, just because they don't see it that often. So if you get given a diagram with um, 
circles essentially it's circles and some of these circles have got positives and some of these circles have got negatives and usually it almost looks like um like a cube um what you need to realize is that that's a 3d image of an ionic compound sometimes they've got um keys or codes so sometimes they might have circles um, that are labeled na plus sometimes you might have circles that are labeled cl minus um so sometimes they're a little bit nicer, but they don't always have to have a key or a code. They could just expect you to, to realize that when you've got positively charged um, and negatively charged elements, it is an ionic compound. So the one you're usually asked is sodium chloride because um, that's a pretty typical one. So that's ionic bonding. The next type of bonding is covalent bonding. And I like to do a little word association with this. So co, um, when we think of co, we think of team, we think of sharing. Um, and usually when I'm teaching this, I actually kind of do like a little gesture, like um, almost like a little, like a, like a sharing uh, gesture, like a hug, co. Because what happens is with covalent bonding is it's going to be a sharing of electrons to form covalent bonds and it's usually small molecules and it's always between two or more non-metals so there's no metals involved with this at all it's all going to be group three four five six seven those are going to be the ones that you're going to have to look out for and some of the typical ones that you need to know are things you might want to jot this down um, so that you can go back and look at how these dot and cross diagrams are actually drawn um, your typical ones a lot of the times that you have to potentially draw are water so h2o ammonia nh3 um, methane so methane gas which is ch4 um, you've also got carbon dioxide, CO2, and anything in group 7 can actually be bonded together. So it comes in a diatom, and I think I've used that keyword previously on the first chemistry um, podcast, um, these longer podcasts that I've been doing. So a diatomic um kind of bond is when you've got two because the code di stands for two so it's a diatom so anything in group seven any of your halogens are usually they can bond together so you that's why you can have chlorine which is bonded together um that's an example you've also the ones you need to be able to actually draw i'm going to list them in a moment um because these are the ones that you really need to practice because they are on your specification. So hydrogen is one of them. Chlorine, like I said, is another one. Then we've got oxygen, which is a third one. And nitrogen, uh, so nitrogen, N2, all on its own. Oxygen was O2, all on its own. Hydrogen, H2. And then we've got hydrogen chloride. So hydrogen and chlorine, 
um, will react together to form hydrogen chlorides, which is HCl. And then, like I said earlier, we've got water, ammonia, and methane. So all of those will bond in covalent bonds. And you need to be able to use dot and cross diagrams um, and be able to draw them for those specific ones. Um, so yeah, those are really the main points for covalent bonding. We will look at um, larger structures in a moment, like diamond and graphite, but before we do that, the last um, type of bond that you need to know about is called metallic bonding. And it really is in the name. So if you think about it, metallic bonding. So it's between metals. Um, and it can usually be in a giant structure where the atoms are arranged in a regular pattern. So a lot of times you think of it like a lattice um, because they are in a regular pattern. Now, you occasionally have to draw a diagram of this. It does not need to be overcomplicated, but I highly, highly suggest that you do take a look and you do Google metallic bonding. It's also on BBC Bite Size. Um, if you're looking for a place to see a good diagram. So it's between all metals and main things that you need to try to remember is that they're delocalized electrons. So you've got metal ions because the metals, the metal atoms have lost some of their electrons and those electrons are called delocalized. So they're able to flow and they're able to actually move around the whole structure itself. And that's one of the main reasons why some metals are able to conduct electricity. So think about your copper wiring, um, that's going around the electrics in your house right now. And the whole reason why you can actually turn on a light switch and actually make your lights turn on or make an appliance turn on, turn on your hair straightener is it really is because those electrons are able to go off of the shells and they're able to become delocalized not local to any shell and they're able to flow and they're able to move and they're what actually causes a current so they're able to flow around your copper wires and cause that flow and cause that current to actually happen so in terms of metallic bonding it's not very complicated and there's not a lot that you have to try to remember. Um, it really just is that key word about delocalized electrons and remembering that those electrons are able to flow and are able to move and then take a look at a diagram for that because you might be asked to describe it or label it. The next section, um, before we start looking at some giant molecules, is how bonding and how structure are related to the property of substances. And what they mean by this is they want you to be able to know about the three states of matter, which honestly it is something that you have been learning for years and years and years. So yes, you still need to remember that the three states of matter are solid, liquids, 
and gases. And yes, you also need to remember kind of the rough detail of what melting means, what freezing means, what boiling means, what condensation means, what evaporation means, because all of those words about changing states um, could come up. Now, in terms of what you might get asked to do with this information, you might get asked to draw a simple model. Um, so representing solid particles as little tiny circles um, or represent liquid particles as tiny little circles or gas particles. So with a solid, you need to try to remember that all they're all arranged. They're in a fixed pattern. They don't move around. So you shouldn't have any arrows or any little lines around those circles to indicate that they're vibrating um, they do vibrate when they're heated um, like for example metals do but your solid diagram should just be circles all in a regular pattern all in a roll, row and columns filling up that entire space and then with liquids you need to remember that liquids fill the container so one of the common misconceptions and a lot of diagrams on Google actually are wrong um, and they do this incorrectly is they will have liquid particles that are floating. Okay, Liquid doesn't float unless if it's turning into a gas um, because of thermal energy increasing because it's getting heated up because it's starting to evaporate and turn into a gas. Liquid um, should never in a diagram not be touching the other particles because liquid can't rise. Liquid shouldn't be rising. So be really, really careful when you are drawing liquid because that's the one that if anyone gets wrong, it's usually that one. And then with gases, that one's quite easy. You draw all those kind of circles all spread out. Um, sometimes people add in uh, little vibrations or little arrows which are fine to show that the gas has got lots and lots of kinetic energy. Um, so in terms of your solid liquids and gases you kind of really just need to know um, the differences between them in terms of drawing them. You need to be able to also explain what happens when a solid is heated up. So if a solid's heated up, it will, some of the bonds will break because of that thermal energy. And then it will melt, forming a liquid. That liquid's got a little bit more kinetic energy, so it's able to flow, it's able to move. So being able to talk about how your states of change states of matter change a little bit um, is more something that comes up in your physics paper but they do still have the words in your specification so in terms of you knowing that there there is melting there is boiling there is freezing there is condensation that can happen and then you want to try to also remember the state symbols which really uh, there's one that's tricky um just if you haven't gone through it in a while but they really are self-explanatory so solids is an s liquid is an l gas is a g and then aqueous solutions is a q so any aqueous solution anything any solid that's been dissolved in water to form a solution 
is going to be AQ. So you could have copper chloride solution in an electrolysis practical, which is a required practical. So most of you have looked at copper chloride or copper sulfate solution. So copper sulfate solution is that bright blue solution and it would have a symbol AQ. So next thing we're going to take a look at because we've gone through three types of bonding, we've gone through states of matter, we've gone through your state symbols is kind of the properties and looking at the large um, small and large molecules really so in terms of diamond and graphite so first thing we're going to take a look at is properties of ionic compounds so these are things that you might get asked um, a lot of times they're in the short answer versions of your exams so ionic compounds they all have regular structures so they're usually giant ionic lattices okay i keep using the word lattice and it's because it is a keyword and you really should look up what these diagrams look like because um, it will show you and once you've looked at a few diagrams the word lattice should hopefully start getting ingrained in your brain and associated with this diagram this lattice structure diagram um, and they will have strong electrostatic forces. So ionic compounds, they've got regular structures, strong electrostatic forces. They usually have very high melting points, very high boiling points. And that means that you need to have a lot of energy in order to break the bonds. So a lot of the times the energy is going to be thermal energy, most times. Um, and that thermal energy is able to break the bonds um, because of the melting points and because of the boiling points. And the other thing that you should know, because it links nicely into a second part of the chemistry paper one, is when anything's melted or dissolved in water, ionic compounds conduct electricity. And the reason they're able to conduct electricity and they've got the property that they can flow is because if you melt them or dissolve them in water, the ions become free. So the ions are freed up and you have positive ions and you've got negative ions in this solution or in this liquid. And those positive and negative ions are able to move and are able to flow. So that's why they can conduct electricity. And that statement's really, really important to try to remember all the way through because it's something that is seen in electrolysis, which is a major required practical. If you don't remember it, you should um, take a look at the Malsbury Science YouTube channel because they demonstrate it and they show it really, really well. So if you're not sure what electrolysis is, if you don't remember it, take a look at Malsbury Science. Um, in terms of just some other video links as well, there are lots of great videos from Fuse School 
and also stated clearly. I think those two YouTube channels are quite good as well. So if you want to just go back and watch some videos on some of these topics, um, start there. Also use BBC Bite Size. It has got so much great stuff on it and your revision guides as well. So those are properties of ionic compounds, regular structure, strong electrostatic forces, high melting point, high boiling point. They need a lot of energy to break them. And when they're melted or dissolved in water to form a solution, the ionic compounds will conduct electricity because the ions are free to move and they can flow. Now, the next thing we're going to take a look at um, is properties of small molecules. So I know we just talked about ionic compounds. So when you think of the word compounds, you think of it as large. But with small molecules, I need you to think of basically they're usually gases or liquids. Um, and they're substances that consist of small molecules, which are usually gases or liquids. And they differ from ionic compounds because they've got low melting points and low boiling points. Um, they also have weak forces between the molecules. And a force between a molecule has got the name of intermolecular forces. So small molecules have got weak intermolecular forces um, so you don't need as many um, as much energy to break them so that's why they've got low melting points and low boiling points um, that intermolecular forces will increase as the size of the molecule increases um, that being said the larger the molecule the higher or the melting point the higher the boiling point um, and another major difference is they don't conduct the electricity because the molecules themselves have, don't have an overall electrical charge. Gases, if it's a group of gases, as if it's um, a substance that's made up of um, gases, there will be no ions, so there will be no electrical charge. So in terms of properties of small molecules, um, you need to know this is just a little summary on that. They're substances that consist of small molecules, usually gases, usually liquids. They've got low melting points. They've got low boiling points because they've got weak intermolecular forces. These will increase if the molecules increase. And then before we get to the giant covalent structures like diamond and graphite, which you need to know, there's another couple small sections that make up this part of paper one as well. And it's knowing about polymers and alloys. So polymers um, have very large molecules. Um, they're a lot of times I, um, show examples of polymers and a lot of times um, I always explain that some of the great examples of polymers are plastics because um, that's what those are some examples of how polymers are used and 
atoms in a polymer are usually linked together with very, very strong covalent bonds. And the intermolecular forces between them are really, really strong as well. And that's why these polymers are solids at room temperature. So if you think about most plastics, most plastics are solids at room temperature. And then alloys. Alloys are um, a mixture of metals. That's, that's really what it is. Alloys are a mixture of metals. And why they're different from metals and why you'd actually want to mix metals together to form substances um, and materials is actually because pure metals are too soft for a lot of uses. If you've got a pure gold or if your family has got a pure gold um, ring um, that's been passed down for generations, you can actually, you can crush it pretty easily because pure gold is way too soft. Um, so a lot of your jewelry now and a lot of tools and a lot of building supplies are made up of alloys because they're mixed um, with a number of different metals to make them hard, um, to make them more durable. Um, and they're distorted in layers um, compared to pure metal, so it's harder to break. Um, and they don't break apart, they don't slide over each other. Um, so that's really, that's the difference between a pure metal and an alloy. Now, in terms of diamond and graphite, these are your giant covalent structures. Silicon dioxide also is part of that. Um, and you might get asked a little bit on silicon dioxide. You need to be able to recognize 2D and 3D representations of these. So pause, Google, get up those diagrams of diamond and graphite and silicon dioxide. And my biggest suggestion for you is actually practice writing out a comparison between diamond and graphite because this comes up a lot. And even if it doesn't come up, it would still be a really good practice for you in writing out a five or a six mark kind of model answer just so you have gone through it and you've done it and you've had the practice of doing it. So diamond. Okay, diamond is formed of, it's all formed of carbon. That's the first thing. Diamond and graphite, both made out of carbon. The difference between diamond and graphite is diamond, um, each of the carbon atoms forms four covalent bonds with the other carbon atoms. Whereas in graphite, each of the carbon atoms forms three covalent bonds. So it's slightly different. Diamond forms four covalent bonds and graphite forms three. And that relates to the structures and the properties and how they act. So because of this, diamond is very hard. It's got a very high melting point and it does not conduct electricity. So those are your main facts for diamond. Diamond's made up of carbon. Each carbon atom has four covalent bonds. Diamond's very hard. It's got a high melting point and it does not conduct electricity. 
with graphite, it's also made up of carbon, but it only forms three covalent bonds. It forms layers and hexagonal rings, which have no covalent bonds between the layers. So it makes it a little bit weaker. Um, and these layers form a lattice structure. Again, that word lattice keeps coming up. And with graphite, because it's only formed three bonds, one electron is actually delocalized and it's free to move, which enables it to conduct electricity. And basically, it's got some of the opposite characteristics of diamond. So instead of being hard, it's actually a lot softer. And instead of it having an extremely high melting point, it has got a lower melting point than diamond. So your main takeaway points for graphite is that it's formed of carbon. Each carbon atom forms three covalent bonds. It forms layers, hexagonal rings, lattice structure, it has delocalized electrons, so it can conduct electricity, and it's soft and has a lower melting point than diamond. So that's diamond and graphite. And the last thing that you really need to try to remember is graphene and fluorines. And these are kind of more recent discoveries. Um, they're not that old, um, but they have been around for a little bit now. And graphene and fluorines are used a lot of the times in industry. Um, and they're used in nanotechnology, electronics, um, use of building materials and things like that. So you need to know a little bit about each. So we're just going to go through that now. So graphene is a single layer of graphite okay so think about what we just talked about with graphite earlier and graphene is just a single layer of graphite um, and it's used in electronics and composites and fluorines are molecules of carbon atoms with hollow shapes and the structure of the fluorine is based on hexagonal rings of carbon atoms usually the rings of these hollow shaped um, hexagonal rings usually contain rings of five or seven carbon atoms and there is a very famous um, spherical shape and it was the first fluorine that was ever discovered and it is C60 so it's made up of 60 carbons and it was named after the person who discovered it and it is called a Buckminster fluorine so you can google that one because um, that is one that is one of the more famous ones and carbon nanotubes are different types of fluorines that have got high lengths um, to diameter ratios. So what they're used for is nanotechnology, electronics, and different materials. So graphene, fluorine, 
and the example of carbon nanotubules, which is a type of fluorine, are all kind of variations and versions of graphite. So they're all made up of carbon atoms, again, um, and they're just kind of shaped slightly differently so that you can get different properties out of them for electronics, for composites, for nanotechnology within computers, programming, and different materials and things like that. So I highly, highly suggest um, that you go back through this, you practice doing some dot and cross diagrams of your ionic and your covalent bonding, and you just get yourself really prepped and ready and you make some flashcards that you can come back and revise it and go back through it. So that is part two of chemistry paper one. Um, so hope you guys enjoyed it. Get out there, have a lovely day and get revising.